Hello and welcome. Thank you for downloading this week's Sermon and Prayers of Intercession from the English Reformed Church Amsterdam. We hope you will enjoy what you are about to hear and that you will be blessed. Now God be in my speaking, God in our understanding, and may God move us. Amen. For the last 40 years, or most of them, I have appeared in this pulpit, usually in the last Sunday in July and the first two in August. And that has been during the time of four different ministers, all of whom have often gone by a calendar of readings called the lectionary, Catholic Protestant Anglican churches use the lectionary, which tells us what we should read to the congregation on any Sunday. And there's a three-year cycle. If I had kept strictly to that, I would be preaching the same sermon as I had three years ago, and six years ago, and nine years ago, and hope that no one could remember. So usually when I come, I choose to do something different. And for these three Sundays, I'm going to look at different miracles of Jesus, partly because these are aspects of his ministry. There are over 30 of them which were important to him, but often the church is a little hesitant about the miracles. And the first one we're going to reflect on is the miracle of the water being turned into wine. The reason for choosing this is that I don't have a regular congregation. I work all over the world. I very rarely do weddings. But it happens that between July and August, I'll have conducted three weddings, one of them in this church. So my attention was drawn to it, and perhaps it's one of the miracles where people are most cynical. There was a British, a Scottish Bible scholar called William Barclay, who was known or suspected of being a little cynical about the miracles. And the story is that he came into Glasgow Airport and went through the customs, and a man recognized him. Everyone knew his face. He was on television in Scotland once a week, speaking about St. Paul. It was an incredible series of programs. So the customs man said, oh, Professor Barclay. And uh, Professor Barclay said, yes, it's me. He says, where have you been, Professor? He says, well, I've just come off an Air France, Air France flight. And were you in Paris? No, he said, I went to Lourdes, because Lourdes is a place where there are miracles. And I just went to check out how these miracles happened. And did you have a good time, said the customs man. I had a great time, says Barclay. It was great. I learned so much. People were very kind to me. Now, says the customs man, you're a famous person. I should not be asking this, but do you have anything to declare? <laughs> oh, no, said Barclay. I have nothing. So, because people are watching us, you don't mind if I open your suitcase? No, he said, go ahead. And he opens Barclay's suitcase, and he sees these two bottles of brown liquid. And he says, now, what would these be, Professor Barclay? And Barclay said, well, this is Lourdes water, and I have a biochemist friend in Glasgow University 
who will analyze it and see if there's anything special about the water. Or, says the customs man, we have a biochemist just behind us here. (laughs) So why don't I take the bottle? Bartley says, please do, please do, solve the mystery. So the customs man takes the bottles behind the screen, and two minutes later, he says, I don't know how to say this. I don't know whether you'll be surprised or annoyed, but you see, in, in, in this bottle, it's not Lourdes water. It's finest Courvoisier brandy. And Bartley said, well, that's the biggest miracle I've come across in my life. <laughs> so back to the gospel, which begins with Mary. That's how the story begins. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, Mary is not someone who, in my childhood, we spoke much about. I came from a very Protestant part of Scotland, where Protestants believed that Mary was a Catholic. So, (laughs) we only spoke about her at Christmas. But whether you were brought up as a Catholic or as a Protestant, very possibly you'd have a rather, oh, timid and perhaps passive understanding of Mary. Because when people spoke of her or when they depicted her in statues or stained glass, she was always quiet always pale, always obedient, always with a 50-centimeter waist, even when she was pregnant, (laughs) and always young. I once asked some Roman Catholic nuns, how old do you think Mary was at the wedding of Cana? And one nun said 22, another nun said 23, and then two said 24. I said, sisters, the Immaculate Conception is one thing, but having a child who's older than you is something entirely different. Jesus would have been at least 30 when this miracle happened, which makes Mary probably in her mid-40s or later. So let's stop thinking of her as a young girl and think of her as someone who's been around for a while, who's perhaps a little more rotund than she was when she was 17. Somebody who has looked after people all her life, cooked for her family, and probably entertained the people whom Jesus brought to her house. And now she is the guest of honor. It begins with, there was a wedding at Cana, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. So she has nothing to do except to enjoy this party. She just needs to eat and drink, and that is it. Maybe she's got a party hat on. Maybe she's had a bottle chair or two, (laughs) a little drink. Maybe she's looking forward to the sing-song or to when people, as they do at weddings, tell a story about the bride and the groom when they were younger. And then she notices that the wine has run out. So she says to Jesus, the wine has run out. Now, how does Mary say this? Does she say it quietly, piously, fearfully? Does she say, Jesus, there's no wine left? And does he say, Mother, my time has no... Is that the way they talk to each other? (laughs) Or is uh, is is Mary disappointed? Is Mary pointing to Jesus that there's nothing... She's saying, Jesus, 
There's no line there. <laughs> or is she perhaps angry? She said, Jesus, there's no wine left. And he says, woman or mother, my time has not yet come. Now, what does that mean? It's a very odd phrase. In fact, scholars of the New Testament say it's the most difficult phrase, one of the most difficult in John's Gospel, to understand what does it mean. Does it mean, mother, this is not the time for me to draw attention to myself. Let's celebrate the wedding with the bride and the groom. Or is he saying, mother, this is not the time for me to show my miraculous powers. This is not the place and the time. Or is he saying, mother, I won't do everything that you ask me. <laughs> but, but the possibility is that he is perhaps a little frustrated with the request, and that Mary is perhaps slightly angry. I was sharing this story in Australia six weeks ago, and there was a person in the group which I was taking who said, I think she was actually quite angry. I said, why did you think that? She said, well, why has the wine run out? Maybe because Jesus and an unexpected number of disciples have arrived. They haven't eaten or drunk for three or four days, and now there's free food and free drink, so they've scoffed the whole lot. Maybe that's behind her saying the wine has... But Mary doesn't tell Jesus to fix it. She just draws his attention to the fact there's no more wine. And then he leaves the table and has a word with the waiters, and before long, Beaujolais Nouveau appears. And everyone is congratulating the bridegroom because the bridegroom was the person who paid for the wedding feast. It's very awkward when you're being thanked for something you never did. A year ago, I was in a church in Scotland, and this man came up. He said, John, you haven't been here for 20 years. I said, really? He said, it's 20 years, and I remember it very vividly. It was an evening service, and you got us all to sing new songs, and you played your guitar, and you're a marvelous guitarist. I would not know which end of a guitar to put in my mouth. <laughs> I've never, but I didn't know what to say. This man is beginning to moisten with gratitude, and I think, what, what do you say? Now, this points to one of three things which we find in this story. If you ask me, how did Jesus change perhaps 180 gallons of water into wine, I have as little idea as the bridegroom. I don't know how he would change a teaspoonful of water into wine. And I'm not going to attempt to explain it because a miracle, by definition, is something which can't be explained. But... John does not call this a miracle. He talks about the miracles as signs. And signs, the word is semion in Greek, signs always point to something bigger than themselves. And John believes that when Jesus performs a miracle, he is pointing us not to the miracle, but to the bigger implication of what is there. And I want to suggest briefly three things. And the first is, that Jesus creates confusion. 
In nearly every miracle, there is confusion. Confusion in this miracle because people cannot understand why the best wine has been kept to the last. Confusion in the bridegroom's mind because he's been congratulated and, and it's not his work that did it. Jesus creates confusion. And Mary, in her Magnificat, the song she sang when she was told that she was pregnant, prophesied this. She sang of how God has brought down the powerful and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The purpose of Jesus in history is not to rubber stamp, to approve of what we believe, what we think should be priorities, who we believe should be included or excluded. The purpose of Jesus in history is to subvert, undermine human wisdom, conventional expectations, so that new things can happen and deeper truths can be discovered and forgotten people can be remembered. And that's why the miracles are full of confusion. And secondly, this miracle, as others, is a sign that Jesus loves justice. And we'll see that more in the next two miracles, that Jesus loves justice. Three weeks ago in Edinburgh, there was an international conference of deacons from all over Europe and, and Africa. It was held in a university in Edinburgh, and the catering, the food, was not, sadly, of the best standard. Indeed, at two early meals, the food ran out. Now, I'm sitting opposite a woman from Tanzania, a woman who has come thousands of miles to this conference. And because people were so delighted to see her, they had been speaking to her with some intention. And so she was last at the queue. And she came and sat down opposite me, and all she had was a piece of lettuce and a cold potato. And you felt, this is unjust. This woman deserves as much as anyone else. And maybe that's true at Cana, whether it was disciples or whether it was those who are young and agile and of endless appetites, the wine had gone. And Jesus recognizes this, and as a sign that justice is for all, he creates not just some new wine, but an excess of new wine. Because when it comes to justice, God is generous. God does not keep to the rules. God breaks the rules so that everyone's cup is overflowing. And finally, the third sign, third thing that the sign points to, and it's especially true in this miracle, is that Jesus' purpose is to create joy. Oh, I wish we had more pictures of Jesus smiling. I wish we had a picture of that wedding feast with people full of delight at this beautiful new wine which they've received, and Jesus perhaps winking over at his mother. I wish we could speak of the joy of Jesus as easily as we speak of his sorrow. Because ultimately in heaven and on earth, this is his purpose. Jesus did not say, the things that I have to deal with are too much for me. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus did not say, the present is so frightening, I wish we could go back to the past. 
Jesus said, Look, I am making all things new. Come, let us go forward. Jesus did not say, I have come that my despair might be in you and your anxiety be unbearable. Jesus said, I have come that my joy might be in you and that your joy, your joy, might be complete. To the one who makes this and all things possible, be our praise and glory now and forever. Amen. And so we pray. From our mother and father's arms, you, God, have blessed us. In the delights of love, intimacy, commitment, growing and learning, you have blessed us. And in the sorrows we did not seek, the betrayals and disappointments of life, the grief we caused ourselves and others, you did not abandon us, even when we threw our anger in your face. So we bless you. We bless you for your making of us, for your caring for us, for your guidance to us, for your gospel in us. But we do not presume that every path will be smooth and every day bright. How can we, when we are caught up in the pain of those we love, the pain of them growing up or growing old or becoming ill and the pain we share when they move from this earth into your closer presence. We do not presume every path will be smooth when in homes or work or politics. It seems that we and others are more interested in being listened to than in listening to others. We do not presume every path will be smooth when in some of our nations truth and lies have become undistinguishable. Politics have become more for the party than the common good, and the burning issues in our world are tactically avoided. No, we do not and will not presume that every path will be smooth and every day bright, but we do pray earnestly for healing where there is suffering. for blessing where there is grief, for integrity where lies abound, and love for the world where there is indifference. 
And on this weekend, when the city of Amsterdam encourages people to take pride in who they are, we remember those who in the past or at present experience rejection and abuse because of their color, religion, or sexuality. And we ask that they may find true welcome and affirmation. And we pray for their persecutors that they might move from hatred to understanding. And all this we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.